First off, ladies, this is your last wellspring, huh? And what a what a what a big step down to combine with a bunch of the guys on a Saturday morning to finish your your year like that. That's that's tough. But um, we're excited for you. And we, uh, I just want you to know, as as the elder who's like um, who oversees women's ministry and uh, has been a part of the planning with these ladies um, over the last uh, year plus, it has just been so encouraging to hear from them what they share. You know, with me about how you're responding and um, how eager and teachable you are. Um, I was able to be with the, the ladies on the Wednesday Wellspring a week ago, and it's the same thing. And there's between Wednesday Wellspring, your Saturday Wellspring, and the guys in Build, I think we have about 100 people in our church getting this. And we just started student ministries this last year, and guess what we're teaching junior hires and high schoolers? That you need to shepherd your heart with the word of God in order to meet with a God of the word and you must pay attention to your household relationships and you must minister the gospel to people in in your ministry. And we put a lot of gospel in there too with the kids. Um, But as, as we do here as well. But um, I can't wait to see the fruit of what's going to come year, years down the road with this. Um, that from the earliest time that you can sit and be responsible for the Word of God yourself as a, you know, a, a middle schooler or whatever, all the way up. This is this is just our message to ourselves. Uh, what Build and Wellspring are all about. Um, ladies with Wellspring, and, and I'll say this with the guys, so there's a couple things I want to say there, like the, the end of the year, last things to say, because it's appropriate for you ladies and guys, it's appropriate for you, but we keep meeting for two more months, um, or this month and next anyway. Um, but I just want to encourage you all to, to take Wellspring again, or, or take Build again. Do it again if you want. It's not the kind of thing that, well, it's not like first grade. Where there's like shame if you have to go back and do first grade again. It's not like that. Even though most of what we're going to be doing in Wellspring next year and in Build next year is you know 80% the same, um, we need to hear these things again and again and again. And I want to encourage you um, to 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 be prepared to take Wellspring again. Uh, if you do, if you take a year off, that's great. Come back and do it again. How many of you guys have done Build before? Who are here? Our guys come back through and they cycle their way through it again. Um, and I just want to remind you what what Peter said in Second Peter one verses twelve to fifteen. He says, "Therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and you have been established in the truth which is present within you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder." Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, so also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Uh, The Christian life is one of taking very um, prevalent truths, very well-known truths, and taking the hammer and hitting them one more time. And doing it again and again and again and again. Um, and so these are things that we never want to graduate from. And I know that when I teach this same stuff again, 
number one, I, I want to, I'm involved in build for a, a lot of reasons. One of the first reasons is I want to hear this again. I want to run this through my own heart again. I need it. But I know that when I teach it again, it comes out a little differently. And especially the group that you have assembled makes it all happen differently. This year with Build has been different than any other year uh, prior. And last year, I would say, is different than any other year prior. It's not the same as the way that it is this year. And Wellspring will be the same thing. So I just want to encourage you to, to do it again. And also, um, on, the, on the women's side, there's a, there's a mentoring ministry that Chris Evans um, helps head up. And if you think that in starting Wellspring this year, ladies, um, there are some good things that have begun to take root in your heart, but you really want to become even more intentional about them um, so that you're not just every other week in a setting like this and then in a small group setting um, approach those things and deal with those challenges and encouragements. Um, if you would want to meet one-on-one -on -one with a lady to continue talking about these things, to please, uh, you can either let me know, you can let Chris Evans know, you can let Chris, uh, I just said Chris, Sarah, and Lori, you can let the ladies here know who are in leadership and they can get you plugged in with Chris to do that, okay? Um, and also just a reminder that your commitment to that we've called you to to read your Bible in a year, um, it doesn't end when Wellspring ends. Uh, we want to encourage you to just keep reading your Bible throughout the whole year. Just try to do the best you can there um, so that you are soaking in every corner and nook and cranny of Scripture and what God has to reveal of himself there. Okay? Uh, let's see. Sarah, Lori, is there anything else from you think that we need to cover? Okay. All right. Well, let's do this. Let's pray, and then we're going to look at our church's biblical vision and gospel purpose statement. Okay? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this um, opportunity, Lord. We um, have a unique opportunity in front of us, just as men and women in the church, husbands and wives, to be together and to think about um, what it is that um, your word says about the glory of God, the cross of Jesus Christ, the, the transformation of life that the Holy Spirit brings. We get to think about... Um, your gospel mission for us, being drawn in, built up, and sent out for Jesus Christ's sake. And Father, these are um, some of the main uh, rebar that run through the, the whole of Scripture. Um, and so God, we ask for your help this morning. Anytime your word is open, God, we, we want to be humble and we want to recognize our need and so we beg of you now to come and meet with us to help us see these things rightly, accurately. Help us to be teachable. I pray that, Lord, that our hearts would be soft to receive your word implanted so that we might not be hearers merely of your word, but doers of it. We need to be able to leave um, changed and living differently, um, maybe with a greater resolution in our minds uh, to live according to your word and under your word, by your spirit. Father, I pray that um, you would come and minister to us with your word. So Lord, we commit our time to you, we commit ourselves to you, and we trust you, and we love you, and we love your Bible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you've got your uh, handout in front of you, let's go ahead and take a look at that.
Our plan is to leave the last hour so that, uh, ladies, you can stay here and do small groups together, or actually you're going to be together and just talk about evidences of God's grace in all of this uh, for you this last year. And guys, we're going to head over to the library after this and um, do our small group time over there, okay? So let's talk about, um, this is in Discipline 6. I always, um, it's Discipline 6 for the guys. You, you girls don't have Discipline 6. Um, but uh, it's the church's vision and purpose statement, and what we need to see and what we need to get um, is that hopefully Discipline 1, 2, and 3 will stay with you for the rest of your life regardless of what church you're at. You would take uh, shepherding your heart, shepherding your home, and bringing the gospel to people in ministry. You would take that into any church you would go to. But right now, in this season of your life, you're at Grace Bible Church. And so we want you to know what makes Grace Bible Church tick and what what drives us, what's the vision that we have, what's our our purpose, uh, so that you can take Discipline 1, 2, and 3, and you can live them out under... Um, this church's vision and purpose statement. And the way that we sum it up is there at the top of your page, a biblical vision of God leads us to our gospel purpose in Christ. Every one of those words is, is we are very intentional about. It, uh, and hopefully it will make m- much more sense to you and, and it won't just be merely words today. But we need to start with the biblical vision of God. And it's always helpful to when you're trying to describe what you mean or what your intentions are to talk about what you do not mean. And what we do not mean by vision in particular is that any one of the elders or all of them had a vision. You don't want that. My dreams are weird, and I don't share them with anybody except my kids because they have the same kind of weird dreams. But we're not talking about a subjective, unverifiable, dreamlike vision. That's not what we're talking about. Nothing like that at all. Um... So what do we mean by biblical vision? And I want to focus on those two words, biblical and vision. So let's start first with vision. Primarily what we mean by by vision is just um, we're we're trying to emphasize sight or seeing, our vision. Okay. We want to set our sights or our vision on the Bible and we want to see everything in the world as the Bible sees. Okay. So we're setting our sights on the Bible, and we want to see everything as the Bible sees. We want the Bible's vision of things, of our own lives. Um, For us, the Bible is both something like a stained glass window and a lens. A stained glass window is something you look at. You don't put a stained glass window up to your eyes, your face, and look through it at the world. But that's what we're saying we want to do. We want to look at the stained glass window, and we want to see the world through that. And that's the Bible. That's what we're trying to get at here. So we want to set our sights or our vision on the Bible, and we want to see everything as the Bible. That would be like the first uh, eye there underneath. What do we mean by biblical vision? Okay? Um, If you want to just there just say the stained glass window and a lens. We have a stained glass window lens. That's what we have. In the Bible. Secondly, and this is so important, I can't, I can't underscore this enough. Um, we want the Bible, texts in the Bible, to be the controlling line of authority over everything. Over everything. 
including our theology. The Bible is the controlling line of authority. It is the controlling line of authority. That's what we mean by a biblical vision. It is not a theological vision. Now let me um, explain what I mean by this. Everyone draws theological conclusions from the texts that they read in the Bible. Everyone does. You do and I do. Every single person. You read a Bible or a passage in the Bible and you make a theological conclusion. And then as you read other texts, you make another one. And then you read another chapter and you make another theological conclusion. And then you start going, you know what, I've got a whole bunch of theological conclusions that I've read from the Bible. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to organize those theological conclusions and I'm going to put them into a system. And every single one of you this morning, you have a system of theology, theological conclusions that you've drawn from the Bible. Whether you know it or not, whether you knew that's what you were doing or not, you have it. And every single one of us, when we come back to the Bible to read again, we are influenced by those theological conclusions that we have drawn from our prior reading. You believe God to be a certain kind of God, and when you open your Bible, you're counting on that. You're looking for that. Now, what is your controlling line of authority? It cannot be your theological conclusions. You might be right, but they cannot be your controlling line of authority. Your controlling line of authority is always the Bible. It is always a biblical text. So you come with all of your theological convictions and conclusions. I love my theological conclusions and convictions that I have. And every time I come to the Bible, I have to discipline myself to say, I hold those with an open hand. If I have a white-knuckled grip on my theological conclusions, and I ain't going to let go of them, when I come to the Bible, what's going to give? The Bible. And your theological convictions are not your controlling line of authority. The Bible is your controlling line of authority. So make your theological conclusions. Love your theological conclusions. But your controlling line of authority is the Bible, and when you come back to it, you hold your hand open and you say, God through your word, reshape this theological conviction I have, if need be. Do you understand that? And where man gets himself into trouble is that he likes his theological conclusions so much that he'll write him, them down, and he'll even want to catechize his kids in them, and when he comes back to the Bible, the Bible has to give to justify the theological summary that he has. That is not a good place to be. As good and wonderful as your theology might be, your controlling line of authority is the Bible. Do you understand? So you've got to watch yourself when you come back to your Bible always. Okay? What do we mean by a biblical vision of God? Why, do, why does it say a biblical vision of God? Because the emphasis is on God. Right? This is all about God. What if you read your Bible in the early pages of the Bible and you see creation? And let's say you see it accurately and you see it... Um, uh, you see it truthfully. You look at you look at creation. You see creation, and then you read a little bit more, and you see Israel, and then you read a little bit more, and you say, "Oh my goodness, look at Mosaic Law! It's a massive 
body of moral regulation uh, that God has given to Israel. And then you go a little bit further and you see that there's even more covenants that God gives. And then you read a little bit further in your Bible and there's the church. I see the church. And then you read to the end of your Bible and you say, what an amazing end. What if you read all of that, but you don't get the God of creation and you don't get the God of Israel, and you read, but you don't see the God of Mosaic Law, and you don't see the God of the covenants, and you don't get the God of the church, and you miss the God of the end. All of those things that you find in the Bible, Bible, all of those subjects, they serve to reveal something about God. This is discipline one. We come to the Bible, the Word of God, because we want to get the God of the Word. And He reveals so many amazing things that He's been doing throughout redemptive history. But you don't want those things in and of themselves. You want the God of those things. It's a biblical vision of God. Okay? And so our biblical vision that we've come up with is in three parts. And why is it in three parts? Because our God has revealed himself to be three in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Scripture is first and foremost the revelation of a person. And when I heard somebody say that to me, I had been a youth pastor at Camelback Bible Church for, I think, six years, five years, My ministry was going well. I was reading my Bible every day. I was encouraged by what I saw God doing. And when I heard a man say that we need to come back to the Word of God to see that it is revelation of a being, it shook my world because I realized that I was reading it. And I wasn't sure that every time I was reading it, I was actually wanting to meet with God. And that terrified me as a Christian man. It terrified me as a pastor, as an elder. And that sent me on a tailspin for about a year. Where I'm not sure, it took me a year to climb out of, it took me a while to figure out where I was, and then it took me a year to climb out of it. So if you feel this year, if this is something newer to you, and you're like, what's the big deal? Or, you know, it's like, oh my goodness. That's okay. Trust God. Let Him lead you where He needs to lead you in this. And then you never go back. You never go back to opening the Bible and being content to have your Bible open, but whether or not you met with God, yeah, that's negotiable. No, it's not negotiable. Okay? Everything rests on this. If you are this kind of person who comes to the Word of God to see God, and you won't leave the Word of God until you've seen Him, You're like Jacob wrestling, and you go, I won't let you leave until you bless me. Okay? You're like that. You're something like that with the Bible. If you're that kind of a man, that kind of a woman, oh my goodness, step into people's lives, please. Get near as many people as you possibly can. And God will do amazing things in your life. How would we summarize this biblical vision of God? Um, Our biblical vision is really our attempt to summarize the message of the Bible through the three persons of the Godhead. That is a huge task. You're trying to summarize the message of the Bible through the three persons of the Godhead. Now, anytime you take something this big, this thick, and you try to summarize it in a statement, are you going to get everything? 
No, I mean, so I'm going to be the first to tell you, this doesn't, this vision statement and purpose statement, it doesn't get everything at all. But we're trying to summarize the message of the Bible through the three members of the Godhead. It's about the glory of God in the cross of Jesus for the transformation of life that the Holy Spirit brings. That's the message of the Bible. That's how we're trying to summarize it, okay? So let's go ahead and just jump in to the glory of God. So get this. This is our stained glass window, the glory of God. We want to look at the glory of God, but then we want to see the world, what? Through the glory of God, with the glory of God in mind. Everything must be about the glory of God that we see in life. Now, this is where I would say the God the Father is found. It's in this part of the triad. Um, we're not here denying that the, whole, that the Son has glory. You're going to see in a moment that the Son does have glory, and the Holy Spirit obviously has glory as well. Uh, and one of the things I would encourage you to do is, as you read through the Bible each year, take themes and um, look for them in the Bible. Look for the word glory as you read. Watch for all of the ways that it's used. Watch for who has glory. Watch for the way that whether or not um, the way that man views glory on a horizontal basis between one another strictly that way. Look at the way God views glory. Watch glory in the Old Testament. Watch glory in the New Testament. And just write glory in your margin. Or keep another piece of paper and just make your own concordance on glory. Um, you will be so blessed. What does glory mean? Glory means weightiness. This is God's weightiness. It's literally the word heavy in Hebrew. It's God's worth. It's his splendor. It's his impressiveness. It's that which makes him weighty. And oftentimes, most often, that weightiness of God is expressed through radiant light or brilliance. Radiant light. Brilliant light. There's a sense in which um, I think in God's word that God's glory is that which he uses to reveal himself to man. In one sense, it could be said his glory is, is his language he uses to communicate himself. Because uh, John tells us in John 1.18 that no one has seen God at any time. And God himself told Moses in Exodus 33, verse 20, No man can see me and live. God cannot communicate himself with his raw presence because you can't handle it. So what does he do to communicate something of himself so man can get it at times in redemptive history? He says, here's my glory. Brilliant, radiant, shining light that makes you drop to the ground like a dead man. That makes you come back down the mountain and your face is glowing. God communicates something of himself through his weightiness. Weighty, impressant, uh, impressive, radiant form. He, he comes up with something like that. Something that man is capable of soaking in. Now, Old Testament passages, I wish we could take the time and look at all these. You're, I'm going to just encourage you to read um, all these passages slowly and carefully. Exodus 33 is, is like the, one of the pinnacle Old Testament passages on God's glory. Chapter 32 was the golden calf. And God says to Moses on the mountain in Exodus 33, he says, just go. You and the people just go. And I'll send an angel in front of you. And that angel will drive out all of the nations of, of the land. But just go. Because if I keep going with you, you're all dead. And Moses says, 
this is your people. And, and you said you were going to go with me, and, and I can't do this on my own. I, I need to know who you are. I need to know your ways. In fact, God, show me your glory. And God says to Moses, um, over by where I am, figure that out, okay? Over by where I am, there's a, there's a cleft in the rock. Get in it, and I'll pass by you. And as I come by, I'll put my hand over you. And then as I leave, I'll take my hand away and you can see my backside. You can see me leaving you, but you can't see my face because no man can see me and live. That's Moses showing us discipline one. What, what is this whole great thing that's happening if you're not with me? If I don't know you? I, I don't, I don't want to go another step forward. What's going to make us different than all the other peoples? Is it not you in our presence? What makes you different than everybody else in the world right now? Is it not Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God dwelling in you? That's the Old Testament idea. Another key Old Testament passage I don't have written down for you is is actually Isaiah 6. Um, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, there are various New Testament passages on this, on Jesus' glory in John 1. Um, there's future glory for uh, talking about in Jesus in the Matthew 16 and 24 and verse, uh, chapter 25 and Revelation 22. But here's I want to have you pair a couple of them up, and you can look at these on your own. Uh, pair Exodus 33 and Luke 9, 28 to 36. Take those two passages and hold them together. Exodus 33 is what I just talked to you about Moses on a mountain and the glory of God is there. Luke 9 is uh, Jesus, uh, it is said in, in all of the, the gospel accounts where this occurs, um, and Jesus told some of the disciples that some of you will not die until you've seen the kingdom of God. Three days later they went up onto a mountain and Jesus' face was transfigured before them. His clothes became whiter than any launderer on earth can make clothes white. His face was exploding with light. And then two guys show up. Moses and Elijah. And Moses on this mountain looking at radiant light goes, I've seen this before. I know this moment. And so here's the law and the prophets standing there before the Son of God. Moses and Elijah. Here's the Old Testament witness on the mountain. And Peter says, i got a great idea. We need three-tenths. Three-tenths of equal value. One for you, Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And the, every gospel writer says he had no idea what he was saying. In other words, it is so obvious in the first century, the people who were... That you don't do that. Why? Because they're not all three equal. God comes in his cloud and he shrouds them all. They get terrified. And God says, "Um, this is my beloved son. You listen to him. Moses and the prophets serve to point away from themselves to the one who's greater than them. He's the one of glory. He's the one who's glorious. So those two passages go together. Also, Isaiah 6 and John 12. Isaiah 6 and John 12. 
I'm going to read John 12 to you. If you want to turn there, you can, but I'm not going to wait for you, okay, because we're going to try to keep moving as quickly as we can. John 12, verse 37 says, But though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and receive, uh, perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. And he spoke of him. Wait a minute. Who did he see in the Old Testament in Isaiah 6? He saw Jesus. He saw the Son of God before he was Jesus of Nazareth. Those passages go together. So what? The glory of God in Scripture. So what? Here's what we, here's what we think about as Christians. We, we know that we are supposed to glorify God. Glorify God in everything you do. Whether you eat or drink... Do it all to the glory of God. I need to. We we think of when we think of glory, we think of something. I, I have to glorify God. Listen, there's a step before glorifying God. Practically speaking, position yourself every single day before the Bible to drink in the glory of God first. Just come to the stained glass window and look at the weightiness of God in Scripture. Look at His impressiveness in Scripture. Look at His splendor in Scripture. Look at His radiant, glorious, brilliant light in Scripture. Come away from the Bible glowing and you'll have no trouble glorifying God. The one who is able to glorify God best is the one who soaked in the glory of God first. If you don't come to the Bible to soak in the glory of God and you just try to run out and glorify God with your life, good luck. You are hampering yourself. You're, you've hamstrung yourself. Soak in the glory of God. This is all about discipline one. The men and women, as you read through the Bible, who were most equipped and most effective for God throughout redemptive history were those who hungered to see the glory of God. That's true in the pages of Scripture, and it's true in church history. And it needs to be true in Grace Bible Church. It needs to be true in your family. You want your kids, moms and dads, you want your kids to be impacted? You want to glorify God in your parenting? You need to be a dad. So all you want to see is the glory of God in Scripture. You need to be a mom. You need to be a wife. You need to be a roommate. You need to be a son. You need to be a daughter. That all you want is the glory of God in Scripture. The cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. How is Christ's death on the cross related to God's glory? I love this. You can go ahead and turn to Hebrews 9 and we'll be there in just a moment. Go to Hebrews 9, verse 18. The glory of God in Scripture is inseparably tied by God to the blood shed in substitutionary sacrifice. God tied His glory to the shed blood of a substitute in sacrifice in worship. 
Can I give you the proof of that? In the Old Testament, on that mountain, on Mount Sinai, God came and he enveloped, he smothered the mountain with his presence. The whole thing was constantly quaking and reverberating under the weightiness and the impressiveness and the brilliant radiance of God. He told the people, make sure no animal, don't get anywhere near this mountain, keep the people back. And yet one man was able to trek up there and once in a while the elders would go up with him as well. But he would go up there and God revealed to Moses, he said, you know what? All of you are living down there in tents. I want you to make me a tent. And I'm going to put my glory in that tent. And I think Moses had to say, you got to be kidding me. This mountain is suffering under the weight of God. And you're going to take all of that and you're going to come in a tent. And he says, yeah, and I want you to put the tent in the middle of all your other tents. And then he went on to say, in my tent where my glory is, there's going to be blood everywhere. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 18. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. It needed blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and the water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, blood everywhere, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. Blood everywhere. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of these things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. The copy is, is in Sinai. It's, on the, it's in the wilderness. That tent in the middle of all of Israel is a copy of what is really true in heaven. And it was necessary that that copy, I mean, it's just a copy, and sinful men made it, and sinful men are gathered around it, and I'm calling sinful men to come to it to worship me. It's gotta be, it has to be cleansed. Blood. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. He never went into the holy place in the temple. A mere copy of the true one. But he went into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, at the climax of all things, he himself has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Listen, you can't talk about the glory of God without eventually, not eventually, inevitably getting to blood. And it works the other way around. If you want to talk about the cross of Jesus Christ and his blood being shed, you at some point must talk about the glory of God, the impressiveness of God, how weighty God is. You can't talk about the glory of God without talking about forgiveness. 
You can't talk about the glory of God without talking about blood being shed. You can't talk about the glory of God without talking about the putting away of sin. You can't talk about the glory of God without talking about how God bore away sin in his son at the cross. Now, the cross of Christ, what are we not saying? Two things, let me point out here. We're not interested merely in a cross. Okay? We're not interested in a Christless cross. We have to be careful in our language that we don't um, talk about the cross as if we leave Jesus too disconnected from it. There were a lot of Roman crosses. There was only the one Roman cross that's precious to us. It's the one with our Savior on it, who actually isn't on it. He's in heaven. So we're not merely interested in a cross. Secondly, we're not trying to diminish the empty tomb by focusing on the cross. We're not trying to focus on the cross to the exclusion of the empty tomb. What we're saying is this. The cross makes no sense without Jesus on it. And an empty tomb makes no sense without the right one dying on the cross before it. The cross is what gives meaning, uh, the cross of Christ is what gives meaning to the resurrection. Now you've got an Old Testament type in this. Leviticus 16 is the day of atonement. Two goats, one uh, slaughtered as the substitute, the other, the priest would put his hands on the head of the goat and he would confess the sins of Israel onto the goat and then they would chase the goat out into the wilderness and the idea is that the goat on its own would perish apart from others and apart from the nation of Israel. And the word atonement is used 15 times, I think, in Leviticus 16. Your key New Testament passage is the one that I just read to you. Now I'm going to give you a key theological phrase. Are you ready? This is your theology lesson today. This is what you draw. This is your conclusion you draw from Scripture, and you hold on to this, and you let the Bible be the controlling line of authority every time you come back to the Bible. Here's three key words. Are you ready? Penal, substitutionary, atonement. Penal, substitutionary, atonement. We have that first word, penal, we have that in a part of other words that we use all of the time. Like penalty, penalize. There is a penalty that must be paid. It can only be paid by, next word, a substitute. A substitute must offer himself in the place of the one who has the penalty on him. And the substitute must give his life as a sacrifice or must give himself as an atonement for that penalty so that the one who is being atoned for can then have a relationship with God and can worship God. Uh, the, the, the helpful thing with the word atonement is to make you at one at one with God. Atonement, right? At one. Um, that's helpful to remember. Now I'm going to give you two other key words with atonement. Are you ready? Expiation, E-X-P-I-A-T-I-O-N, and propitiation, P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N. Expiation means taking away guilt, taking away shame, taking away sin. That's the goat being chased out into the wilderness. 
That's a key component of atonement. If you have any hope of being at one with God, your sin must be taken away. Out of the presence of God. That's Jesus. In fact, it says um, in Hebrews 9, 26, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 28, to bear the sins of many. And then propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath. Not only must your sin be taken out of his presence, but God's cup, uh, his war cup of anger, it must be bone dry. So that when he comes to you, there's no reason for him to be provoked. And Christ drank it all. He said in the garden, if there's any way for me to not drink this cup, please, let's think of another way that we can atone for man's sin. But if not, Father, I didn't come to do my will, I came to do yours. Practically speaking, what does this mean? I have two passages for you, 1 Corinthians 2 and Galatians 6. 1 Corinthians 2 is Paul saying, um, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ, Jesus Christ and him crucified. You have no other message. Practically speaking, you have nothing else to say to anybody else in the world eternally. So, I mean, in matters of eternity, there's only one thing to say. You know nothing else except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In your home, you know nothing else except to talk about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Hi, Megan. Welcome. Thanks for bringing your friend. We're we'll welcome to take a look at little Madeline here. How's it going? How are you feeling? Good. I understand. It's good. Damien, good man. Look at that. Um, so you, you know nothing else what to say. Galatians 6. I want you to turn there. Galatians 6. Verse 14. Practically speaking, what else? Let's model our lives after Paul. He said, May it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, for boasting, you need to be somebody that all you're doing is you're only ever talking about Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and then your boasting is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He says, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision. Lots of circumcised Jews didn't make it to heaven. Lots of uncircumcised Gentiles didn't make it to heaven. That's nothing. What matters? It's a new creation. Being made new. And the cross is everything to that. Which leads us inevitably to the life transformation by the Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit is to make you that new creation. And the only way that you can become that new creation is if all of the work of Christ at the cross is applied to your life. So that it's not merely a historical event that took place 2,000 years ago, but it becomes in time, at some point, applied and inseparable from your life. And the member of the Godhead who does that is the Holy Spirit. He applies the work of Christ. He applies propitiation. He applies expiation to the life of the one that God is saving. And when he does that, a massive salvation takes place. You do not merely get fire insurance. And then you just kind of keep living your life as you've been living. 
No. The salvation that is revealed by God in Scripture is a massive one in which, yeah, you miss the fires of hell. But you are a new creation. You are new. You are a new man. You are a new identity in Christ. You are born again. A new birth must come. And that new birth ushers in a brand new life, a new way of living. Progressive sanctification gets ushered in. So penal substitutionary atonement in the hands of the Holy Spirit does all of this. You become new. You become forgiven. Sin's penalty is taken away when the Spirit brings penal substitutionary atonement to your life. Sin's power is broken when the Holy Spirit comes and severs you. As Paul says, I have been crucified to the world and the world to me. Sin's power is broken. And eventually, we have the promise, it's even spoken of as if it's already happened, sin's presence forever will be vanquished in glorification. Now, I want to take just a a short moment and talk about the relationship between regeneration and um, actually progressive sanctification. I'm not sure you have that written down there. Does it just say understanding regeneration? You can put in parentheses behind it and progressive sanctification. Listen, this is very important. Birthing the sinner into a new life before God, that is rooted in a moment. That is an event. Regeneration is an event. Okay? But that event ushers in, inevitably so, a new way of living, a new lifestyle before God. That is called progressive sanctification. Things get mixed up when we switch those two things. Bad doctrine ruins people when regeneration is talked about like it's a process that must happen to you over time. And sanctification gets all mixed up when it's talking about an event. And, you know, I'm not sure I've sinned over the last two weeks at all. I've been thinking. I just People actually come up with that. Some of you have may have gone to churches. I had a guy tell me that one of his pastors told him that he was, he was pretty sure that he hadn't sinned for a couple weeks. Is that right? That's a mix-up. Sanctification is a process by which sin is increasingly put away and holiness is pursued. One has one set of fingerprints on it. Which one? Regeneration has only one set of fingerprints on it and it's not yours. It's the Holy Spirit's. It's his job to birth you again, to cause you to be born again. Sanctification, progressive sanctification, has two sets of fingerprints on it. Whose? Yours and the Holy Spirit's. That's why it is imperfect. Not because the Spirit's fingerprints are on it. But because yours are, and mine are. Right? Old Testament uh, Testament anticipation of this is in Jeremiah 31, in Exodus 36. In Exodus 36, you have the promise of the Holy Spirit to Israel. Chapter 37 is a great chapter after that on the dead bones that come to life and the Spirit of God, his role in that. The New Testament teaching, we don't have time to look at all these, but John 3 is uh, Jesus talking to Nicodemus saying, you must be born again. Titus 3, 3 through 8 is huge. Uh, In fact, let's go to Titus 3, and we'll take a look at that.
We once were foolish ourselves, Titus 3.3, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. And like is very helpful, let's talk about what He doesn't mean by this when He saved us. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but He saved us according to His mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Excellent triune passage. He must, in verse 6, be the Father, who poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Holy Spirit. So you see, that's the story of the Bible, is the three members of the Godhead working together to bring about this salvation that changes us. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. Romans 8 is about living by the Spirit. If you're living by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body. Galatians 3, having begun by the Spirit, you do not want to finish and complete and perfect things by the flesh. The Spirit starts things, but that doesn't mean that the Spirit doesn't have any more role in your life. The Spirit must be central in your sanctification process also. 1 Peter 1.2, we are chosen by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Practically speaking, the Holy Spirit in groups like us, of our theological persuasion and Bible church kind of background, the Holy Spirit is unfortunately often the forgotten member of the Godhead. Or, what often happens in other circles outside of us, is his gifting of the members of the body. That's the only thing that gets talked about. And there is something foundational under his gifting that he does before gifting ever comes. And that is his applying of the cross in time to the sinner that is being saved. I would encourage you that every day you need to plead for fullness of the Spirit in your life. Okay? Why? Because you must walk by the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the body. For continual transformation. Every day you must, you must give thanks to God for His Spirit. So again, this is our stained glass window that we want to look at. We want to gaze on the glory of God. We want to gaze on the cross of Jesus Christ. We want to gaze on a changed life brought by the Spirit of God. But I need to look at you. First off, forget that. I need to look at my own heart through the glory of God, the cross of Christ, and is my life changed by the Spirit of God? You start there, and then you look at other people's lives the same way. For the glory of God, you want the cross of Christ present in their lives so that their lives are changed by the Holy Spirit. You look, your parenting, that's parenting 101. If you do wonderful parenting and you miss that, it's not so wonderful. Small group interaction, co-workers, evangelism, the lost. This is what you look through. This is what you think. This is everything that you see through. Let's move to the second part, our gospel purpose in Christ. What do we mean by gospel purpose? What we're doing here is we're recognizing... 
uh, the place in redemptive history in which we live. We are not um, wandering through a land that has been promised to us with Abraham, but we're just sojourning in it like he did. You know, he didn't possess the land. He, he sojourned in the land that was promised to him. What we're acknowledging is that that's not us. We're not living there under Abraham's purpose. What we're acknowledging is that we're not um, a part of Israel going into a, a promised land with swords drawn to bring about God's judgment on other nations. That's not our purpose that we live under. Um, we are the church. And God has a purpose for us in Jesus Christ, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, are there similarities between us and Abraham? Oh, absolutely. We are children of Abraham in Jesus Christ through faith in him. But Abraham had a different purpose than we did. And are we similar to Israel? They were the people of God of the Old Testament. Guess what? We're the people of God too. But we're not Israel. And Israel is not the church. We have different purposes. But we have a lot in common. Abraham relied on righteousness being declared his on the basis of faith. Israel was counting on that. And we today are counting on that. Right? Abraham needed a substitute's blood shed in his place. Israel needed a substitute's blood shed in their place. We need a substitute's blood shed in our place. It's just that we are at the consummation of the ages in which Christ has come and his blood was shed. The one, the, the one blood that all the other bloods looked forward to. See, there's all kinds of similarities. We are not under the same purpose. We are under the gospel purpose of Jesus Christ. And Jesus in the gospel, with his disciples, he appeared to have three primary overlap, uh, overlapping complementary activities for his disciples. Activities. Drawing in, building up, and sending them out. Now, the glory of God. Is there anything, is there any action there in that statement? The glory of God. No. It's a proposition. It's just a statement. The cross of Jesus Christ. Is there anything there for you to do? No, it's just a proposition. Transformation of life by the Holy Spirit. That one's trickier because it does change you and, and you know that that means you should be doing something. But in and of itself, it too is as much a proposition as the other two. And so what do we set out in front of ourselves first as a church? This is what we're going to go do. No, what we set out in front of us first is this is what God has done. These are his propositions to us. These are what we lay underneath us and set underneath us like a, a solid foundation. Because if we're ever going to go do anything, we better have these things under our feet, under our lives, under our hearts. Our lives resting on them, counting on them, depending on them. And then we talk about what do we do? Well, that's all about who we are in Jesus Christ. We must be about drawing in the lost, building up the saints, and sending them out, living as sent ones. So let's jump into that, drawing in. i got a blank for you to fill in. Drawing in is uniquely God's sovereign and saving work. That's God's sovereign and saving work. Go to John 6. I want you to see this. Jesus made this very clear. John 6, 44. He said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is God's work to do. Chapter 6, verse 65. And he was saying, For this reason I've said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. It will not enter our minds that we should draw near to God unless he helps us see that, prepares us for it. And so what we don't mean here by drawing in is we are not thinking of drawing in as, hey, we want to draw you into our worship service. Please be drawn into this evangelistic program, this event. But what we're thinking about most of all is being savingly drawn in to Christ in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not satisfied for men, for women, for boys, for girls to be drawn into a program, drawn into your small group, drawn into our worship service, but have them still not yet be drawn into Jesus Christ. Now, hopefully I made you a little nervous with that. Hopefully you're wanting me now, okay, but programs, <coughs> you think programs are evil? No. But if you are having a program set up because you just want people to come and you equate, if they come to the program, that means they're saved. We don't want that. That's not what we're about at all. Do we want people to come to our worship service who are not yet saved? I, I hope they will come and I hope they will hear the gospel and see it every time. Do you want an unbeliever to be interacting with the people in your small group on a regular basis? Uh, I hope so. But the very fact that they are there doesn't necessarily to you mean that everything has happened that needs to happen. Because what you're most concerned about is that they are savingly drawn in to God by God. Okay? So you are never satisfied until... They had been drawn in with the cross, which takes us to the second blank to fill in. Jesus Christ is God's unique object of attraction. It's his unique object of attraction. John 12, Jesus says, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross the, of Jesus Christ is what God lifts up in our hearts, and it alone has power. And your program that you do is only as good as much as it lifts up what is powerful. And the way people program, the way churches program, and you watch the way that we program, and you help us, the way that we program reveals where we think power is. And the way we talk to people reveals where we think power is. We think that there's only one place where there's power for people to be savingly drawn in. It's in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Because that is the power of God. That is what has power to save a sinner. Nothing else does. Verses 22 to 24 of 1 Corinthians is, But to those who are called, Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Chapter 2, 1 to 5 again. 
I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And he goes on to say in verse 5, and the reason is, is that your faith must not rest on the wisdom of men. Not like we did something really cool. You came to it, and, you, and your faith now in Christ rests on the fact that we did that. And now we have to keep doing that so that you'll keep coming and keep resting on that. Now, Paul says, I didn't speak and I didn't minister to you in such a way that your faith would rest on me or on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Practically speaking for you, what does this mean? This is a helpful question or a statement or something to keep in front of you. Listen, use what the Holy Spirit loves to use to draw in sinners to himself, to save them. And that is the gospel. That is the the good news of Jesus Christ crucified for forgiveness of sin. As you reach out to unbelievers in your life, as you're reaching out to your children who may not yet be... uh, Saved. Ask yourself this crucial question. What would the Holy Spirit love to use to savingly draw in my son, my daughter, my mom, my dad, my neighbor, my coworker, the person in my small group? If you prop up other things in front of them, and this is where, look, friendship evangelism is so important. You need to love sinners, and you need to be with them, and you need to participate in their life. And, and, and even where you can, where their interests are, let your interests intersect with them. And do all of those things with them. If they only see that from you, the ways that you participate with them and the thing you enjoy, mutual things, and, and if you conclude from that that, hey, it looks like they really are receiving all of this. If from that you conclude that I think they're really open to God. And you have never put in front of them Christ crucified. You don't know anything yet about where they're at. So befriend them and love them and participate in whatever it is that you think you can. But Christ crucified lifted up in front of them all of the time because that is the only thing that has power. And you're not with them merely because you both like bowling. You're about a a few bigger things than that in life, right? As good as bowling may be. Um, Anyway. Keep Christ crucified in front of them on the drawing inside. Building up. Um, Understanding the place of my edification within the church's edification. If there is something that I, I think the evangelical church has been probably weak in, at least in my lifetime, it is making a Christian think and believe that all that I really need to focus on is just my own building up, my own edification. I need to grow in Jesus Christ. I need to read the Bible. It's for me. I need to become more obedient because it's for me. And what I want you to think of is, is that the way the Bible represents edification? So look at Ephesians 4 with me for a moment. I want you to see this. We're going to rush through this really fast because... You just don't have the time to give to it what you want to. But Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he, Jesus, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Why were those foundational, crucial gifts given to the church, who are people? Verse 12, for the, we all know this, right? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. That's what needs to happen. I need to be equipped because I've got work to do. I need to be serving the Lord with my work 
and that's what I need to do. How does the verse end? We need to make sure that we don't memorize the first half of verse 11 and forget all of the verse. This is for the building up of the body. That tells you God's heart. That tells you God's heart. God's heart is that the body of Christ is built up in the world. Wherever it is gathered in local places, that body must be built up and strong. Other words used, the unity of the faith, verse 13, to a mature man, verse 13, Verse 16, the whole body is on, on God's mind, and you are a part of that. Look at verse 16. Here's the main idea. This is a big, long, typical Paul sentence. Subjects at the front, verb comes way at the end. Watch this. The whole body, there's the subject. Now go to the last part of it. Causes the growth. There's your main idea. The whole body causes the growth of the body. Now that is a weird thing to say. The body causes the growth of the body, but that is exactly what the Spirit intends. The whole body causes the growth of the body. What is on God's mind? The body. Where do you fit? Does God love you personally? Does God love you individually? Does He focus on your life? Absolutely. But we talk as if that's all he's thinking about. And what I'm saying is give him some airtime on the other things that he's as passionate about. The whole body. Put your life into the whole body. Pour yourself into what God is convinced about and what he's looking to put up in the world. He is not merely looking to put individual sinners out there in the world on display. He's looking to put them together, to gather them together so that the whole body can be seen. Now, how does that happen? Watch this, verse 16. It's being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, by by every connection of supply. Do you know what he does? The way that the body grows is he takes one piece and he takes another piece and he connects them. And what he says he has done that you must trust him on As he says, in that joint, in that connection, is a supply. I have given to the body a supply of power in that connection. The whole body causes the growth of the body when every joint is operating and the connection of supply is going. But that only works when what? Verse 16. According to the proper working of each individual part. There you are. Do you want the supply of connection to be funneling its way and spreading into the body as it's supposed to, bringing about the growth of the body? Well, you need to work properly. And what I'm afraid of is that it's so easy for us to think about edification, my own edification. I I just need to grow. I need to grow. And listen, I am not saying take your eyes off that. Don't take your eyes off of that. But put your eyes also on... The fact that the body of Christ must grow. You cannot be content to be around a lot of people, growing yourself personally, but not connecting your life to other people. If you do that, you don't understand the heart of God. Because this is the heart of God. I I wanted to say that. Listen, that's the heart of God. The body of Christ must grow. It must be built up to be a mature man. Put your mind on that. Don't take your eyes off of your own individual growth. Put your eyes on individual growth, but also on the growth of the body. 
So practically speaking, have you focused so much on your own personal and individual edification that you've forgotten that your life must be connected with others? How connected is your life to others in this body? So again, hear me. Don't focus less on your personal growth. You need to make sure that you are properly working as you are supposed to. And nobody else can make you properly work the way you're supposed to. Only you can. But also focus on others that you are connected with. Lastly, sending out. Before we um, talk specifically about what sending out is, let's talk about the connection between drawing in, building up, and sending out. Drawing in is not first grade. Building up is not second grade. And being sent out is not third grade. It is not that you graduate from the one and go to the next, never to go back to the first. And Now, in some senses, that's true. You were only drawn in savingly by God once. But in the body of Christ, drawing in is going on all of the time while building up is going on while we live as sent ones. In fact, one of the best ways to be built up is to live as a sent one, to actually be going and see God draw in. All these three things happen all at the same time. Okay? And the challenge is this. And there's a reason why we're putting these three things in front of us. And I, as, I, as I taught this in membership recently, and I did it on, on Wednesday Wellspring a week ago, I was reminded of how important it is for me to keep these three things in front of me as an elder in this church. Because then I at least have a chance to make sure that we're, in my mind as an elder, as a shepherd, I'm trying to keep these things in front of us. If I don't focus on these things, I might gravitate towards the one that I like the most or I'm most gifted towards and diminish something else. It would be easy to become a church that is fervently and busily investing itself to draw in sinners through personal evangelism and evangelistic programs, but then not really think clearly about what we should do with them once they come. And some of us know churches like that. And it would be really easy to become a church that is fervently, busily setting before the members of the body Bible study, Bible study, Bible study, Bible study, Bible study, Bible study. But then lose sight of the fact that there are lost around us. And, and I fear that obviously that's where we're going to gravitate towards. It'd be easy to go that direction. We could also become a church that is fervent about missions in this way. I'll define what I mean by that. In that every believer must go now. Every believer now, go. That we, are, we are all sent ones. We are all called to obey the Great Commission. All of you go now. And so we'll even send you to the other part of the world, on the other side. And we haven't really given thought to whether or not... What, what's your character? Do you, what's your gifting? What's your, are you equipped? It doesn't matter because we're just focusing on the one thing that we see that the church has been negligent towards or on the other side. I mean, we can't take one of these and exalt it to the diminishment of the other. We have to fight all of the time to hold each one of the three up. And when one starts falling, we bring it back and we're constantly doing this. You need to be a part of that and helping us and participating in that and figuring out how does God want me to participate in his work to draw in sinners? I need to live as a sent one. Am I being built up, though, in such a way where that is able to fire on all cylinders the way that it's supposed to when I'm doing it? Now let's talk about what it means to be sending out here. Um, God has always been a sending God. 
He has revealed himself this way from the beginning pages of Scripture all the way to the end. In Exodus, he sent Moses to go back to Pharaoh. In Isaiah, the Godhead is speaking, and Isaiah overhears him after he has been cleansed, and he overhears the Godhead saying, Whom shall we send? And Isaiah has been so prepared. He says, How about me? I'll do it. Send me. Jeremiah is sent by God. Ezekiel is called out and sent by God. John chapter 1 and in chapter 3, it's John the Baptist who is sent by God. All you find as you read the Bible is that God sent a prophet. He sent a prophet. He sent another one. He sent me. He sent him. Jesus Christ was sent by the sending Father. Read through the Gospel of John and look for the word send, sends, or sent, and you'll see that it occurs more than 50 times in 22 chapters. Gee, I wonder what his point is. Right? The sending Father sent the Son. In fact, you know what? Even the Holy Spirit was sent to. The Son was sent, the Spirit is sent. In John 14, Jesus says, The Father will send that Helper in my name. Guess what he says, though, in chapter 15, verse 26? Jesus says, I will send him to you in my Father's name. So wait a minute, which is it? Is the Father sending the Spirit, or is Jesus sending the Spirit in the Father's name? Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much for being very involved, God, in sending the Spirit. John 16, 7, I will send him to you. And so let's think about it. Ascending Father sends his sent Son to the cross. They then send the Holy Spirit to come, who's the sent one also, into your life. And when a sending Father, a sent Son, and a sent Spirit convert you, what does a sending Father and a sent Son and a sent Spirit make you into? Oh, evangelism, you know, that's just not, that's just not my gift. It's just, it's just not, it's, I just, it doesn't come naturally for me. And, um, Listen, you, you've got a big problem with what ascending God and ascent Son and ascent Spirit just did in your life. Jesus in John um, chapter 4 referred at the, with the women at the well when the disciples came back. He told the disciples, I sent you into a harvest that other people have already been laboring in. In John chapter 17, he says in his prayer to God, he says, God, as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. After he has been raised from the dead in John 20, verse 21, he says, As the Father sent me, I also send you to the disciples. In Matthew 9, verse 35 and following, he says to the disciples, Look at the harvest. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest. And then in chapter 10, we find out who the workers are. So Peter and the guys would have been, Okay, write this down. We've got to pray. Pray for God to send. God, please send workers. And then they would say, Amen. And Jesus says, Go. What? I was praying for, I thought it was other, I didn't know it was me. Go to Acts chapter 1. We'll finish with this. Another key word with being sent, living as a sent one, is the word witness. You can write that down. Witness. When the sending Father and His sent Son and the sent Spirit converted you, they made you into a sent one. They made you into a witness. 
Jesus in Acts, and here's what I want to do. I want to walk through a, a few passages in Acts to let you see this, but we're going to use the word witness. Verse 8 of Acts 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Did the disciples get this at this point about witnesses? Look at John chapter, or I'm sorry, Acts 1 verse 22. They knew that they needed to replace themselves or they needed to replace Judas uh, with another apostle. And in verse 22, beginning, um, I need to look at verse 21. Therefore, it is necessary that the men, that of the men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us. It looks like Peter is starting to get it. Chapter 2, verse 32. Peter's preaching, and he says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. He seems to be getting it. Chapter 3, verse 15. Verse 14. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you but put to, death the li- put to death the Prince of Life, the One whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Chapter 5, verse 32. If you look at verse 31, He is the One whom God exalted to His right hand as a Prince and a Savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Acts chapter 10, verse 39. Peter with Cornelius. He says, We are witnesses of all the things He did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put Him to death by hanging Him on a cross. God raised Him up on the third day and granted that He become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. Acts chapter 13, verse 31. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now witnesses to the people. Go to chapter 22, verse 15. Let's look at the way Paul views himself and others who are in Christ. Acts 22, verse 15. He's talking about Ananias said to him in verse 14, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you, Paul, will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Chapter 26, verse 16, Paul again giving his testimony later talks about the same event of when Christ came to him and appeared to him on the road to Damascus. The voice, the Lord said, verse 16, Get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and to appoint you a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear, uh, in which I will appear to you. How did he re- think of Stephen? Remember, Paul was there holding the cloaks of others. Go back to Acts 22, verse 20. Paul is standing there holding the cloaks so that the elders can get a better throw with a rock as they're killing Stephen. Acts 22, verse 20. And when the blood of your witness, God, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving the murder of a witness. Listen, you, practically speaking, must see yourself as a sent one. No matter how difficult it is for you to open your mouth about Jesus Christ and Him crucified, 
That is what God made you into. Come back to this reality. Come back to this fact. A sending father sent his son and sent his spirit to make you into a sent one. What you've got to figure out is where does he want you to live that way? Well, first, please live that way in your home. Don't play leapfrog over your home. You must live as a sent one in your home. And then, you know what? Live as a sent one in your church, in your small group, in next generation ministries, in student ministries, wherever you are, live as a sent one representing Jesus Christ. Testify, witness to others of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then be sure to live as a sent one wherever God has you. Are you in school? Are you, are you working? Are you at home in your neighborhood? In your neighborhood, live as a sent one there. And you know what? If you live as a sent one in all of those places and you don't play leapfrog over those things, God will be very pleased to make it clear to you where else, maybe formally, you should be living as a sent one as your church sends, out, sends you out. But do not try to approach the formal part of being a sent one as a missionary someplace else without giving prior attention to all of these other things. Because you're only fooling yourself thinking, I would love to live as a sent one over there. I'm not doing a very good job here. But I would love to do it over there. You must not play leapfrog over the sent one arenas that God currently has you in. And then trust God to lead you where he's going to lead you. We are sent ones. Now, I want you to see the centrality of the gospel in these three things. Drawing in, building up, and sending out. The only way for sinners to be drawn in is with the gospel. The only way for believers to be built up and empowered to live the Christian life is by the power of the gospel. The only way sent ones are effective for Jesus Christ is by lifting up the gospel. What is our purpose? It is a gospel purpose. A gospel purpose. Where did that come from? We set our sights on the glory of God in the cross of Jesus in a changed life that comes. And you know what? All we can think about and all we want to do is gospel stuff. Activity. Okay? And this is our attempt as a church. It misses so much. But this is our attempt as a church to summarize what we think the Bible is about and what we want to be about as a church and keep it in front of us. When we were at Gethsemane, we used to have the two big banners that were up as you walked in that you couldn't walk in without thinking about the glory of God, the cross of Christ, transformation of life, drawing in, building up, sending out. We've got to figure out a way to put those back up somewhere. People will put them down as mats and you have to walk over them. <laughs> So set your sights on the propositions in the biblical vision and then set your hands to work on the gospel purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are um, amazing things to look at and to live for. And I pray, Lord, that you would help each one of us Bring, bring comfort where there needs to be comfort in our lives, Lord. And bring challenge where there needs to be challenge. And Father, help us to come alongside one another as members of the body of Christ whose lives are connected with each other. Help us to encourage one another to identify where we see evidences of God's grace in one another in these things. 
and then to bring gentle exhortation, purposeful and helpful correction. Father, I pray for the church, these men and women here, to help the elders keep these things in front of us. We are not any different than them. We are as prone to forgetfulness. We are as prone to imbalance as they are. And we need each other, and we need your word, and we need you being powerful in our lives. Will you please accomplish whatever it is that you want to accomplish through this church? You set the parameters. You set the length and the width and the breadth of this ministry in this valley and in this world. God, may we labor faithfully wherever you have us for the glory of God, for the cross of Christ, for the changed life that results in the gospel. Help us to live as sent ones who have been built up all so that you might draw in through the gospel we lift up. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.